Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 8th, 2015. Agendas are very boring, especially if you're not let in on the agenda or consulted or given your opinion on anything. It's quite amazing how most folk, of course, will just accept the laws and rules and regulations and the changes that are really forced upon them from above or outside their control. And most accept it because really when everything comes down to it, everything is a choice, a choice as to what you want to understand even, because a lot of understanding is scary to people, especially when you're brought up in a, in a fake reality. And by fake reality, I mean they've taken everything that has been presented to them by authority figures as real, from the schooling system and everything you're told in school and believe in school, from the television uh, that gives you the cartoons for children, with lots of propaganda already built into the cartoons. They get grants for writing all this stuff in, and even in children's novels, preparing their minds for all things to change in the future as they're growing up. They'll accept it because it's, it's embedded in their psyche somewhere that if it's possible, uh, then it'll happen, you see. And, and so we have predictive programming going on all the time from, from thousands of sources, especially today with the communications we have way beyond television and cable TV uh, and so on. And uh, nothing has been overlooked by those who are always in control. And don't ever believe it. It's just outside of their, their ability to control everything. They can control everything, and they do. Big boys in all ages have always controlled information. Always. And for all oh, centuries in the feudal systems in Europe, we find the church and the state were definitely combined together. Occasionally there, there were spats between people who want to overthrow a prince and take his place. And sometimes the Vatican would disapprove of it and then approve them once they were in, as long as they told the line of the religion, which was also part of the culture and so on. Most people forget that, that all peoples and all countries and all ages really followed culture given to them at birth naturally uh, and thought it was all quite natural. It exists all around you, therefore it must be quite a normal thing to exist, the particular culture you're born into. And then everything around it will will reinforce the fact it's normal, including the dominant system of rulership and the religion that often works hand in glove with it too. And again, down through the ages, the dominant religions would have spats with uh, changes as nobility wanted more and more power for themselves, which really meant more and more loot and cash, because everything depended upon taxing the people, you see, everything. To live awfully well in the world, you have to become technically, as a beautiful um, doublespeak, a public servant of some kind. You're there for the greater good, and the servants get paid an awful lot more than the people they tax the money off of. And, of course, the folk who are paying for it all, who are always constantly believing they're the masters, especially in democracy, believe all this. They believe it. Especially today. It's, it's more evident today than ever before. But people, again, will suspend their incredulity on things when they read things in the paper about politicians giving themselves the right to do insider trading because they get all the inside scoop on where to trade and what countries are going to have little wars with their tiffs or, 
or embargoes on and so on. And so you can get in on the, on the ground floor or say that the government wants to take over areas for a new military base, things like that. So you, you want to get uh, your relatives in and friends in, if you're a politician, into the real estate business, buy the land cheap as can be, even pass laws to get the folk off the land by different techniques. And then you get the land for almost peanuts. And then you sell it to the military when that, that particular offer comes up. And that even went on in Thatcher's era. There were scams in the newspapers in Britain exposed all the time about her husband, Dennis, Margaret Thatcher's husband, who always just happened to get the right place uh, and, and got it all for peanuts before the military wanted this new base of this kind or that kind or whatever. But now again, the U.S. government, a year or two ago, gave themselves the right to do insider trading, trading which is illegal for apparently for everybody else. And these are your servants, you see. So your reality is a, a constant reinforcement of the illusion that you get given to you. Initially from your parents, if they've swallowed the whole reality as presented to them, and then it's reinforced through what you read in, cook, in cartoons or comics that you read. And then you're into school. And then from school onwards, you're indoctrinated into the, this reality with dates, times, figures, famous generals and big battles and, and so on. And which really most folk don't give a darn about because it seems irrelevant. And technically it is because all wars have been economic wars for someone to get more than he already has. You see, and uh, in feudal times, it was quite evident about this. How the 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 Queen Elizabeth the First is a fascinating history. Good Queen Bess, they called her, and how she taxed the people. And when the Spanish, I mean, the Spanish Armada came in, it wasn't just because that England had gone so-called rogue or Protestant. It was because the English uh, fleet the privateers that all gave obeyance to the queen and gave her a sh- her treasury a share of the loot uh, would be um, attacking the ships coming back from the Americas, as it's called them, with the gold and so on. And they were robbing them. They were buccaneers and privateers, freebooters, all kinds of names for that. And they were authorized to do so by the Queen of England. So these guys, including Walter Raleigh and so on, became incredibly rich with the privileges that were given by the crown, and uh, and they plundered places. They were given lots of land in England too, and um, that was taken off the peasants, all the common lands. In fact, I think it was Walter Raleigh, when he was made a, a sir or lord or something, he was given a big massive tract of land in England. The commoners were kicked off their common grazing ground for to raise their own vegetables, so they wouldn't starve to death since everything else was taken from them. And some of them moved back in afterwards. And I think they called them the, the, the diggers. But uh, they wanted to go back and live on the land and uh, grow their food and so on, as common law had always had, going back to the Magna Carta and so on. And even before that. And uh, most of them were slaughtered, in fact, because of it. So history, to me, when I look through history, uh, yeah, we can get fascinated by discoveries by certain people and so on, and, and even the scientific areas things like that. The history of the human race has been really plunder and pretty bloody uh, so that a few can always rule over a majority of the people who make things, actually make things that are practical and are needed and so on and uh, the big boys take them off them and, and sell them 
things like that. So you can't live awfully. So you can't live higher than anyone else, unless you've got a whole bunch of them working for you, under you, doing all the stuff that you would normally be doing yourself to survive. Very simple. And there's been many cons throughout history of systems. You'll find the same cons are used over and over again when it comes to ultra-patriotism, when you want to go conquering countries and uh, colonizing and being empirical, as they call it. It's always the same techniques that are used, very simple propaganda techniques of blaming the guys that you want to go and invade in order to steal all their stuff. Not that the country is going to benefit from it, but those who control the country and the financial systems and who already live off all the rest of the people can live at, at a better standard of living. Communism, by the way, used all of these statements and, and facts to, to try and get their system in. But that was another front. Communism's a front too, by the way. It was a front. Well funded by the ones in the West who already controlled the West. And in communism, you find the same elite at the top, uh, living off the rest of them, having everything that the, the rest of the people couldn't have at all. They had all the stereos in the 60s and so on from the West, had everything, had, uh, had all the, some of them had Western cars, things like that, they had no restrictions. They'd get out of the country and in back in the country. Their children could go, up, could go abroad to Switzerland for schooling, things like that. And, um, and you found basically it was the same kind of elite. In fact, most defectors like uh, Yuri Bezmanov admits that at his position in the KGB, belonging to a KGB family, it was, in, it was intergenerational, just like any elite. You find that uh, in the Politburo and so on, you find that they all see the same story, that it wasn't financial reasons that made them move to the West as defectors. Uh, and uh, it was just more that they, 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 could, they could get more done for themselves personally um, in life by joining the West for that period. And then a lot of them, too, were found out to be double agents and triple agents and all this stuff. In the world of spies, believe you me, uh, you, you couldn't trust anybody. So if anybody tries to con you into being an asset of any kind, don't go into it, folks, because you'll end up being a patsy or something. Uh, but you can't, you, you can't force folk to think about things very, for very long or any depth at all these days because sting operations are always being set up with people who are a bit slow, put it that way, or gullible, very naive, or have a genuine beef about something, but they don't understand the big powers at play. They're, they're given, again, the basic essential propaganda that, that everyone's given, and they simply get angry about things, and that gets them nowhere. You'll find that, as I say, in the Middle Ages, even the peasants, all they knew was a religion, the order of things given to them by religion and the government. They had the town criers that would go around on horseback and dismount and read off their decrees to the people, all from the top again. So all they knew really was a little area they lived in. And they might only have one or two miles radius that they've ever lived in their life and and travelled around no more. Because in the serfdom days, you couldn't move off the land and go strolling. You had to stay within boundaries or you were marked, basically. And you could be executed or hung on the spot because you were owned. They don't like to use slavery, they like to call it serfdom, you see. And it sounds better to our ears today, which again, have been far more sophisticatedly dumbed down to accept the present reality. You see, in old days, 
guys on horseback with, who are knights and all the armor, etc., and armies could go around slaughtering uh, willy-nilly. And it took a lot of guys' paychecks for an army like that to keep it all going. Today it's much easier. You have a completely different technique, generally. Uh, to use domestically upon people, and that's the indoctrination process, which I've mentioned many times and quoted and read off the books of many authors of the past who are often dead, who gave us the present or present reality. They, they planned the future for, for their part of their lives. They planned the future. And that included fashion, by the way. Uh, what kind of music they listened to, how they'd radicalize things to destroy the old, bring in the new, and also mind-bomb you with so much stuff that you would be an eager participant in what, you were, what was called changes, you see. Uh, the, the 21st century, this one we're in today, is to be the completion of a complete world order run by very old families, uh, a few newcomers into it if they've managed to stay on the straight and narrow and not get lost in drugs, booze, and all the rest of it. Uh, some so some some new multi 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 billionaires or trillionaires are allowed into it, but uh, traditionally it's been within the, the proper families, as they say. And I've mentioned Carl Quigley many times, who was a historian for what became the dominant group for running the world, and he he wrote mainly, but always he wrote mainly on the American branch of it, which they called the, the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations. And he gave some of the startup story to it, too, in his book, Tragedy and Hope. And he also admitted that the parent company, really her organization, Private Club, was the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Sounds very, very authoritarian and very legitimate, but these are private organization to which the elite of a country belong. And it has many layers in it too, just like Freemasonry. In fact, Cecil Rhodes, whose initial organization set the basis for this transformation into these organizations, talked about it being closely copied after the Jesuit order and Freemasonry, he said, because uh, out of a system of degrees and a need-to-know basis, that's why he was really referring to a need-to-know basis. But Carl Quigley, in the 1960s, was given access to the archive section for the CFR for Americas. And he went through some of the history, then Tragedy and Hope, his book, and also in another book he wrote called The Anglo-American Establishment, outlining the goals and plans to bring in a world order run by really the proper people, you might say. And how they'd have a guise of uh, freedom for the people, but in reality it'd be run Secretly, everything, all major decisions were done secretly by very powerful, rich consortiums of powerful people. And it hasn't changed today. Uh, you find many of their members, in fact, like uh, Woodrow Wilson, the president of the U.S., who was put in in time for uh, the Federal Reserve in World War One, who was really a puppet, a mouthpiece for Mandel House. But Wilson put a book out about the New World Order, and the new order of things. And he also mentioned that something that George Bush Sr. And, and Jr. brought up as well in their speeches to the public, which went over their heads because it wasn't explained by the press who were in on the big secret and the big joke, 
where they called they redefined freedom. They called it the, the new freedom. Well, Woodrow Wilson wrote that in his his book in the early 1900s. So the same agenda goes on regardless of the parties that you bring in. Because Quigley also mentioned that for since about the 1800s, an organisation had had elected its presidents to be put into the U.S. and prime ministers in Europe. Uh, since the late 1800s. So it doesn't matter what party that you think they belong to. Uh, it's only important that you follow a party because they'll always be guided along the same track because the guys at the top are members of the CFR. Many people inside the bureaucracies are also members of the CFR. So we're living through a, an uh, exact agenda. They talked about uh, bringing in a world order. They didn't just mean a, a world order of peace and etc., or prosperity, they meant a world where the proper people themselves would dominate completely. And many of the members, the high members, were into eugenics big time, and they funded the, the programs on eugenics. They funded through their private foundations, uh, the non-governmental organizations for research purposes, like Cold Springs Harbor in, in the States, New York, uh, for to, to do with uh, breeding, if you can just breed the people to be more docile and more compliant, uh, then they wouldn't have problems in the future. So we're being trained in this day and age that we're now civilized, you see. So they don't really have to come down on you like the old days where they're descending the, the knights to slaughter a few dozen peasants to keep them in line. It's done psychologically today. And the victims themselves don't know, uh, and therefore they're guided quite easily. And they're complacent, as always uh, the agenda stated that would be through massive psychological technique and indoctrination. Now, if you go into Carl Quigley again, who was again the official historian for the American branch, the Council on Foreign Relations, they couldn't call themselves Royal Institute or anything because royalty wouldn't go down too well at that time in the U.S. But it says, and this is page 950 of Tragedy and Hope. He says. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network, which this just means it doesn't have to be English to run it, uh, but they're based in London. Anglophile network, which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the Communists act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as round table groups, it says has no aversion to cooperating with the Communists or any other groups, and frequently does so. As I know of the operation of this network because I was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. So, the organization already existed before they called it the CFR, uh, beginning at least, at least, at least the, the more modern um, exposés of when it emerged into the surface of society under the guise of... Uh, Cecil Rhodes Foundation, for instance, where he was instructed by his own uh, peer group, and actually he's better because of richer than he was. In fact, Lord Rothschild was a, a partner with him to go into countries and take over, using the British Empire system, take over the gold, diamonds, and wealth of the world. But you'll find, too, that with the big wars, which they helped, by the way, to foment... I mean, this group literally fomented the Boer War in South Africa, 
so that Britain could take it over, but really for a private interest, for all the wealth. And so you have two, always two versions running together. You have the, the government using the military under the guise of, or oh, the Boers have attacked the English, which wasn't true. It was like the Jamestown raid, where they, they paid these guys to go in and, and attack the Boers, then claiming the Boers were after them. And so Britain sent in its troops under a, a welcoming excuse of um, protecting its citizens. But at the same time as we're doing that in the 1800s, late 1800s, they were fomenting anti-Germanic opinion, in, because they owned all the newspapers in Britain and elsewhere as well. They wanted a world war. How do you get change? You make things happen. Marxism has the same thing. If we're evolving as a species, then here's all the stages you'd have to go through to get the so-called perfect society. Well, you must force the changes through. They won't come by themselves, so you make the events happen, including wars and so on. Because quickly, again, I mean, this guy was a lecturer to the State Department, many of the top names. And... He, he pretty well laid it on the line that he could get more done in five years of war on a social basis and through laws and everything else and taking rights away from the people than you can in 50 years of peace and persuasion and propaganda. And think how long you will be under uh, the laws that have come in since the 90s. Like massive omnibus crime bills, that's what Canada got put through which was an anti-terrorist thing, before 9-11 happened in 2001. And all the countries were in it too. Bill Clinton was putting the same thing through in the States, before 9-11. So we've been at war for an awful long time, and if you go back to Gulf War I and just continue it from there to the present, that's a long time. Look at all the changes that have happened legally and to do with your rights and everything else, and the rights and, and uh, the rights of police and and determinate uh, holding of prisoners forever and ever without trial and so on. All things have happened. More, you can get more done in five years of war than 50 years of peace because, you see, all wars change the societies that are in conflict with each other. They change them at home, often in the same way with rationing, with more obedience to the state because you're in a struggle, you're told and so on and so on. You get, and, and out of that, it doesn't just go away back to what it was before, after the war. No, it stays the same and gets worse. See, once you have a, a herd of any creatures stampeding in fear and rapid change, remember, change is good, change is good, the mantra. This is a, a doctrine. Uh, once you get them stampeding uh, to change and you're directing the, the direction of the change for the stampede, then you, it's, there's no limit on the changes you can bring in one after the other. You get the people to a stage where they, they just run and accept and accept and accept and accept. There's no time to digest information, examine it and think about it and make your own mind up. And therefore, your country is, is at stake here. Uh, be terribly, terribly afraid. They use the same techniques in World War Two. The propaganda in World War Two is pretty well the same as World War One. Uh, your country needs you, and the, the historians at the time, right after them, were writing about uh, how they went off and signed up to 
go and fight for their country to save it, because we're told to go, we're going to save their country and their culture and way of life. Well, look at those countries that took part in World War One and Two now. Hmm. It takes a lot to get countries in real war with each other. And there's an awful lot of preparation in the psyche of the population to get them prepared for it, sometimes years. And they don't even know what's happened to them. They're suddenly all geared up to, to, to see hatred for this enemy. doesn't matter who they are. And off they go. It's years of preparation. And again, cultural change is always used. You take the Vietnam War with the U.S. and Vietnam, and you find that uh, during that phase, that period, in came the hippie power at home, the drug culture. Again, I've gone to the history of this. It wasn't just happenstance from the people. Nothing is ever from the grassroots, unless it's a benefit to those in charge. Anything, anything else about outside the plan might have changes that they can't predict and they'd have to crush the grassroots movement. So in came the drugs, the free sex and all the rest of it. And again, these agendas were written down long before Vietnam. So you're, we're going through massive changes, massive changes all the time. And when Vietnam was over, it already changed Society back home, the opinions changed, the people weren't, weren't going along with government as readily at the time as they had been before. Uh, the old way of life was kind of shattered when they found out so much deception had been used upon them. And again, the same power structure that brought it all on was still in charge. Because they knew where they wanted the culture to go, and they were awfully successful in doing it. Preparing it for a world society. You'll find two that when Russia invaded Afghanistan and the U.S. was already involved in it, in fact, they helped bring on the problems that helped bring that on altogether, you, you'll find uh, that after the long war that the Russians fought in Afghanistan, their culture was vastly changed and shocked, actually shocked, when the people came back with all the stories of what was really going on there and so on and the, the kind of pointlessness of it all. They also brought back with them lots of drugs from the area, the opium areas and so on. And, and Russia never really recovered from that either. People's true indoctrinated faith in the Soviet system have been shattered as well. Now, the big, big boys don't, don't make things happen and they say, oh, goodness, we didn't predict this. They do predict us and they make things happen for to get the desired changes through. We, have, we live in a, a really planned society, a planned organization of humanity. Everything's planned. And the plan today is fulfilling a, a lot of its goals. It already has fulfilled a lot of its goals, but there's some more to do, but they're already underway to, to fulfilling them, including the unification of the world's money system completely. Well, how else can you do it unless you make it appear as though there's massive crisis and everything's out of control and it's chaotic? And that's the impression that's always given to the public, who always turn to government and say, oh, do anything you have to do but save us. And out comes the old dusty agenda. They blow off the dust that's been lying on the shelves for years. Now is the time you open it. And they publish their, their findings. And again, 
non-governmental bodies all meet and their private meetings in Basel, Switzerland and so on and decide the future of your financial systems, which, remember, encompasses everything, your whole way of life and everything else. And you're not an indiv- you cannot be individualistic in this system in any possible way. You can save up all the money you want to find it's worthless when the big boys make it happen so at the stroke of a pen. You know, money goes to money heaven, apparently. It just disappears, we're told, by the top experts, like 2008. That's what they said. Oh, just what happened to the money? Oh, just went to money heaven. That's their tongue-in-cheek joke. Well, who's their god than me? You sit on a pile of loot. But you understand nothing is really yours. And when it's back with nothing anyway, You've got nothing left at the end of it. It just it literally just disappears. You're left with lots of paper. Those, that paper could just as well be recycled into toilet rolls. Then be worth something. Therefore, money is always devalued uh, because it's a built-in structure of debt. Money is printed on and, and debt right away when each note is uh, printed. You've got maybe 60-70% of it already going to, to repay the loans. Loans to whom? They don't actually give you anything, except they'd sign a cheque for your boys to print up the cash. It's a racket, it's a con, because money is a system of control in its present form. And this present form has been here for an awful long time. That's why we're going through all this hype at the right time, of, of world in chaos again, financial systems in chaos again. Something must be done. That's a great quote you find in lots of big players in the past. Something must be done. And and then public immediately say, yeah, yeah, please do it, do it. But that's how it's done. And remember, the goal has always been to, to give the power into these private organizations that already run the world, their money supply of the world. Then the lender to your governments, which are in bed with them, naturally. And you pay for everything down the road so they can all keep their massive high standard of living, which is, which is a massive gap like never before. Massive gap between people who actually make things and do jobs that matter, and as opposed to all those who run all their organizations and think tanks and soak up your cash. And then decide for you what it's going to be worth. Now, one of the main things that economists are told, because it's all based on optimism, isn't it? And future returns, regardless of the fake investments they're doing or bogus investments, is that, that they get the shareholders coming in. Oh, you're all going to get rich down the road. It's all to do with future wealth. Always future utopias for the suckers, you see. But the, the first law is never to have a, a head of a country come out and be pessimistic about things, because then uh, even all the petty shareholders will just draw their cash out of it and so on, and it really brings on the collapse. Because it's all bogus. It's, it's literally a bubble built on optimism, investments. Back in 2008, when Bush Jr. came out on national television, and said, oh, we could be going into a depression even worse than the 1920s one. I mean, who, since he doesn't say a darn thing that isn't scripted for him, and no president does, or prime minister, who gave him permission to say something like that? 
you see. That was to make sure it all happened the way it went. And since then, we've gone through austerity measures and, and, and our, your currency becomes devalued all the time. So as purchasing power goes down all the time, and you'll see that the items you normally buy as staples are going up and up and up and up and up. Massive increases. And it's not stopped yet. So you're back to the old thing that you expect. You always say, what? Something must be done. And the big boys who planned all this a long time ago have already set up the institutions privately. The Bank for International Settlements is owned privately. The International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, are all as one club that runs all of these institutions. The European Central Bank, the central bank system was set up by them too. And now they own the whole conglomeration of central banks. You see? So therefore, we're going through a plan. And you'll find again, if you went to Carl Quigley, he talks about it copiously in the book Tragedy and Hope. There's a big story behind that too, because the printers, the publishers, uh, eventually destroyed the plates of them because you let a bit too much out the bag without permission, apparently. Although Quigley himself said that he wasn't opposed to any of his plans. He was opposed to some of his methods. He, says, he didn't explain what methods he was talking about. But he said that on the whole, he said it's a, it's a, good, a good plan. So he was an elitist himself. And he, he said himself that it had so drastically changed the course of the world's history for over a hundred years, he said, that that it's time that the public should know about it. And he actually thought, I think, that the public would simply accept it, that this idea of democracy was obsolete and, you know, things like that. And maybe he was right, because I, the public, most of the, the, what they call the silent majority, are, they're pretty wise, a lot of them, to the fact that it's all a big joke, the politics. They've lived it long enough, many of them, to see party after party of different persuasions come in, and the same agenda goes forth. And, and each one comes in, signs more treaties with the United Nations that bind them to the, the, the direction it's all to go into. The, the United Nations, too, was set up by, by this private club, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. So let's look at the latest something must be done story, because it's time for them, you see. And this is from the Globe and Mail, and it's February the 5th it was printed. It says, new alarm bells over household debt as Canada faces downward spiral. Downward spiral, eh? Well, we're plummeting down down that, that, that wormhole, aren't we? And it says here, as Canada economy... Canada's economy begins to slow. The country's growing household debt burden is raising new concerns as it outpaces that of most developed countries. In fact, Canada had the second biggest jump in household debt to income ratios of any other country than that of Greece between 2007 and the second quarter of 2014. A new study shows, it says, a new study. That's how they put things out, a new study. It doesn't say by whom. But it says, Canada, Australia, along with a number of countries in Northern Europe, have the largest household debt burdens that existed in the U.S. or the U.K. at the peak of the credit bubble, according to a new analysis. This is the McKinsey Global Institute looked at 47 countries 
And who are they anyway? I mean, who's giving them authority? Anyway, Global Institute, eh? who wants them? And identified seven with potential vulnerabilities in household debt that could lead to financial instability and a consumer spending slowdown. And these are the Netherlands, South Korea, Sweden, Australia, Malaysia, Thailand, and Canada. The study to be released Thursday comes amid mounting evidence of a sputtering economy. The country's GDP shrank in November, and last year's job growth has been revised lower, while the oil prices have slumped, uh, the pumps, restraining business development. The report was based on data to the second quarter of last year. Since then, several factors make the picture in Canada more stark. Household debt-to-income ratio rose further to a record 162.6% in the third quarter. House prices continue to climb, uh, though the pace is slowing. And the Bank of Canada cut interest rates last month, with another reduction possible in March. Moves that could spur even more borrowing, it says. What's the price, folks, for a house or anything else, for that matter? It's someone's idea. Who can make it the price? Those in authority can make it the price. Why are houses so incredibly expensive anyway for stick houses? You know, one time, people simply advertised their own houses for sale in papers, newspapers. And some people would come to their door and they'd look around them, ask the price, and they'd give them the price that they thought it was worth. So the deal was made between the buyer and the seller. And the legalities were written up by a lawyer, which they still are, by the way. You know, But... Um, it was a lot cheaper, and the real estate guys were out of the picture. Today, you have consortiums of, or chains, if you like, of real estate agencies. And in this system, everything's run by chains and investment companies and so on. Therefore, they have to jack up the prices of the houses to get the bigger cut off them when it's sold. Anything to do with money, <laughs> uh, it brings an organization. And the more, in a, any particular organization, the more expensive everything's going to become as want a bigger, bigger cut of things. So, in comes the middlemen, and that's you paying through the nose. In the old days, when the, the buyer and the seller negotiated the price, if the, the, the seller wanted too much for it, he'd eventually get the message it was too expensive when everybody would turn them down, and he'd lower the price and lower the price, you see. But today, uh, it's, it's all an idea. As I say, a price is an idea. And how do you get the idea? They don't have their own ideas anymore. They take it from the going prices. They're told by, again, these big real estate agencies what the going price should be, you see. I mean, technically, you can be able to sell anything you have for whatever you price it, that you can get for it. And if you decide on halfway what the real estate agent's worth, because it's a more natural, realistic price, then why not do it? I mean, you understand what I'm saying? You have the right to do it. But everyone wants more and more cash because they're, they're all, everybody's dangling on the strings of the puppeteers who manipulate all the money system, the currency system, the purchasing power of, the, of your currency and so on. Everything that money touches, in this, especially this modern system, is pretty well corrupt. They'll never use the term, of course, they'll say it's normal, but it's pretty well corrupt. When they'll gouge, it's a parasitical system where everything's eating something below it on the ladder. 
so that they can have more than the, than the one below on the ladder. They don't want to get down to that same rung on the ladder, so they, they, they pass it on, they pass the buck, pass the buck right down to the bottom, you see. And it's an awful trait to bring into humanity, but it's been here for a while. And since everyone's born with the instinct to survive, everyone's strummed into you. Don't get poor, because believe when you're poor, nobody likes you, nobody wants you. You'll die alone, etc. You'll suffer. And, and so you have an exaggerated sense of, of survivability to an extent. The psychopaths always take over such a system to be at the top. And any antidote to it, that, 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 which are all fake, like the communistic system, has the same system, the same psychopaths running their system so they can live better than anybody else. That's just the history of the world, you know, <laughs> summed up. Especially to do with, with money, because money from the, the very inception has been a con the way it's been run. And it introduces a middleman between barter, a person who makes things and barters it off for something else. And so a middleman eventually decides what that's worth. But he's convinced you that that little bit of gold or whatever it is, or silver, is worth more uh, or, or less than you think, you see. Before you had a good idea, you made this thing, it took you so many hours, I'll trade it for a bushel of so-and-so. But not anymore. That's all out of your hands. So your whole system of existence is taken out of your hands. Today we're in massive, big government, which is all part of the new freedom and the new society and the great society, etc., etc. Many terms for the same thing. And I'll get back to this article that says here. Uh, the report was based on data to the second quarter of last year. Since then, several factors make the picture in Canada more stark. This is a repetition from the last one, the one before it, and all the other depressions. Like they never learned, but were run by experts and professionals with all these letters behind their names, etc. Go to Princeton and all the top universities. Eh? Really? Look at how quackery is this. But it says here, household debt-to-income ratio rose further to records 162.6% in the third quarter. House prices continued to climb. Isn't this just repetition, eh? Although the pace is slowing. How many times have you heard this throughout your life? And the, but the experts apparently are, are all astonished at it. And the Bank of Canada cut interest rates last month with another reduction possible in March, moves that could spur even more borrowing. What the financial crisis showed us is that when you have rising real estate prices and rising household debt, it can be a deadly mix. That's why this guy's got his degrees, eh? For saying what we've heard a thousand million times in every other depression. And there's been lots of them, by the way. It says, but you have to manage each carefully. Susan Lund, Washington-based McKinsey partner, said in an interview. It's crucial to monitor household debt levels closely, she said. This government is always broke, apparently. In particular, which segments by income or demographic groups seem to be slipping underwater. And policymakers need to tighten lending standards and reduce mortgage size limits when markets are overheated. Where have we heard all this before and before and before? Of the central bank's rate cut, Ms. Lund said it's tempting to try to spur growth through credit, but it makes the need to monitor debt more urgent. If left unchecked, the risk is that households will no longer be able to afford the debt they've taken on. Again, that's why they have their degrees, eh? Aren't you astonished? Aren't you impressed? Eh? Oh, this is an expert, Tom. They could either be vulnerable to foreclosures and bankruptcies. By 
God that understands the degrees now. Or they could slash spending to pay back debt. That in turn could reduce consumption, which could dent economic growth and trigger a recession, a downward spiral. According to Ms. Land, I'm telling you. Uh, well, why isn't she running the country? Eh? We never got here in this mess. This is what they put out all the time. This, this, this is a major newspaper and an article that's supposed to be informative. So the Bank of Canada has long held that rising household debt poses one of the biggest risks to the domestic economy. Although it's also become increasingly focused on lower oil prices. Residential mortgage credit grew by 5.3. Well, I'm going to go through all the statistics because it's all BS, as we all know, which is bothersome stuff, you know, BS. And it says, <laughs> listen to this, rising house prices have led to larger loans. No, wow, wow. I tell you, it's no wonder we're all sitting at the bottom counting pennies when they're at the top, they're counting their, their millions a year, eh? Just didn't go to the right uh, universities, I guess, to get these special degrees. So the seven countries with household debt that may be unsustainable, you see, unsustainable, have both the highest debt-to-income ratios and significant growth since 2007. Canada's exception having better debt service ratios, though that could change when borrowing costs rise. Well, I would think it might, yeah. And all these figures suggest potential risk, but do not signal imminent crisis. There's a caveat. Canada's household debt numbers include the debt of uncorporated businesses, which is counted as corporate debt in other countries. That may inflate Canada's numbers, though McKinsey noticed that the trend lines still show continuous growth. Now you're totally confused, eh? eh? But this is the kind of stuff you're hit with by the experts. And this same article could go back to 2008 and, and the times before that too, when the same thing happens over and over and over, you see. And the biggest borrower is, is government itself. A long, long, long time ago, they weren't content in just taxing people and living within a budget. They started borrowing from the same international banks. They helped run the world, set up by the private organizations, CFR and Royal Institute for International Affairs. These private lenders, you see. So that's what they give you for a, like a news-breaking story. And we accept it all because we're given no other option, except here's how it is, you dumbos. Uh, and he's experts talking here, and they give you a lot of good common sense advice, but you can't really get it through common sense. You're going to go through many degrees in economics to understand all this. That's why we have so many bank crashes and, and great depressions and recessions, which are just depressions and austerity measures, and, because our expert, if it wasn't for the experts, you know, where would we really be? Eh? Well, maybe your dollar would be worth a dollar. And you could purchase the same things you, you could purchase a year ago, or 10 years ago, or 20, 30 years ago with that dollar. Because it's constantly devalued because of the experts running the system. But it's always your fault, you're borrowing too much, you see. Now let's get back to Carl Quigley, who, he called it the parallel government, the real government, and so on. And so the guy who taught guys who became presidents of the U.S. He taught many 
many people who worked in the different high-level departments of U.S. government and state departments and foreign offices and so on. And he was all for this private control of the whole planet. But he, he says to it in Tragedy of Hope, he says, at the end of the war of 1914, I say 14 to 18 war, it became clear that the organization of this system had to be greatly extended from the Cecil Rhodes organization he's talking about, you see, the, making the British Empire the model for the world, all run in private hands, but not the public's. And it says the task was entrusted to Lionel Curtis, who established England and each dominion, that's, that's the British Commonwealth countries, in fact, they, termed, they, used to, they, they actually coined the term the British Commonwealth, That's the wrong issue for international affairs, a front organization to the existing local round table group. There are many names, you see, because it's so secretive. This front organization, called the Royal Institute for International Affairs, had its, as its nucleus in each area the existing submerged round table groups. So we started using these round table groups for discussion and then. They, they, they created this organization with many levels on it. It says, in New York, the branch was known as the Council on Foreign Relations. Now, in New York, it says, it was a front for J.P. Morgan and Company. And in fact, the original plans for the Royal Institute for International Affairs for, for Britain and the Commonwealth countries and the Council on Foreign Relations were drawn up in, in, in Paris. It's not but at the end of World War One. The powers of financial capitalism has another far-reaching aim, he says. Nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Getting back to even President Wilson, he wrote a book, as I've mentioned it before, but the title of the book was called The New Freedom, published 1913. It says, we're in a new world, and in the new order, government and business must be associated closely. We stand in the presence of a revolution. And he's going to say it will come in peaceful guise. Therefore, this is a long-acting, literally we're living in a script. I keep saying this, I've said that for years. We live through a script where it's all planned by think tanks belonging to one big club. Uh, that plan the future and how to get the public to go along with each step of it and even adapt it and, and fine-hone it for different countries or cultures and so on so they'll all get an indoctrination towards what they think will be inevitability of this system coming in, you see. Everyone's had it. No one's escaped it. Now, Professor Quigley, he talked about the foundations, tax-exempt foundations would fund much of this. They'd fund the organisations that we'd be pro or against whatever system they set up, you see. Uh, demand things from government, laws to be changed, or things to be like the environment that we have today, things like environmentalism, to, to manipulate and control the people. So he goes on to say here, though, that the apex of this system, see, it's all financial. That's how everything's controlled, was to be the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS, in Basel, Switzerland, a private bank owned and controlled by the world's central banks. And that includes the U.S. Federal Reserve as well, and now in the Bank of Canada as well, which were themselves private corporations. Each central bank sought to dominate its government by the ability to control treasury loans, manipulate foreign exchanges, and so on and so on. 
and to influence the level of economic activity in the country and to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards. The last part's awfully interesting, but you all know it. And to influence cooperative politicians by subsequent economic rewards. They're all on the take. So, this one organization, there's different names for different countries, runs known as the central banks. It works and manipulates the economy of the entire planet and the internal economies of countries. They can cause depressions anytime they want, and they do. And they guide all politics because the top members are always theirs. Always theirs. The ones that are supposedly against it are owned by them too, the Fabian societies, etc. They're on all sides of everything. All sides. And uh, I think Quigley even said, um, this is the argument that the two political parties always give you two. What choice do you want on this, this or that? Take your pick. Should represent opposed ideals and policies, one perhaps of the right and the other off the left. It's a foolish idea acceptable only to doctrinaire and academic thinkers. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical. What did they talk about when they run for election? In any country now? Jobs, jobs, jobs. Prosperity, education, unemployment benefits, etc., etc. And it says... uh, Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound or extensive shifts in policy. It's interesting because that's what Thomas Jefferson warned about. He says, when you see the same agenda being carried out between changes in the House, the Democrats, you see, and the politicians, when different parties come in, and go along with the same agendas. He says, no, you're under tyranny. There's nothing new in this at all, really. But it's, it's awfully well done today. It's beautiful, isn't it? And they can always get, the under this term democracy, they use all the authorized non-governmental organizations to get heavily funded, completely funded by the big tax-free or tax-exempt foundations. They go into the guise of charitable works. To demand from government... The laws that they want changed on behalf of the of the big corporations that own the foundations. Everybody says a new feudal system. That's what Quigley said. Where the overlords, the new feudal overlords, will be the CEOs of big, massive corporations. And you have the World Economic Forum and all this kind of thing. Where does they meet? Basel, Switzerland, like the BIS. And so on. Everything that's happening, including the manipulation economy at all times, all times, is done on purpose by those who control it all, who further plans to bring in crisis, to amalgamate and go under one big system. And, and the public will thank them eventually. We're so, so sick of a depression, a financial depression, and its consequences. We'll thank them for it. And along with that will come all the new changes of the new freedom, <laughs> as Woodrow Wilson called it and George Bush Jr. Now, one of the main 
organizations they use, again, privately owned by the same organization, to run the economies of the world is, as I say, the International Monetary Fund. It gives all the lending out with all the conditions that go along with the borrowing and so on to the countries. And they also use the World Bank. World Bank. What's the World Bank? It's another private organization run by the same bunch. And they're already running the world, especially third world countries, and their economies and so on, pretty openly. But it says that um, Hondurans protest World Bank mining plan. We can all protest all we want because it won't matter. It doesn't matter what country you're in. But it says the Honduras government and the World Bank representatives met in the Honduran capital, and to give you the name of it, I won't even bother to pronounce it, to sign deals to allow foreign companies to mine in the country. The two-day conference called Sustainable Use... It's unsustainable. You're all drummed in your ear, your, your brain. Sustainable use of mineral resources, which is the same old mining as always. Gathered experts from Peru, Mexico, Chile, Spain, Bolivia, Argentina, Colombia, and the U.S. and Honduras. Discussed their different experiences and promoted Honduras as a mining country. The numbers are all in the take, and they're bought off by the same uh, Roger of International Affairs and CFR. Mines in the country uh, currently produce profits for around $300 million annually, but the new plan promoted by the World Bank is approved. International private companies, guess who own them, could raise more than $5 billion U.S. annually. Foreign mining companies are present in 14 of Honduras' 18 departments. In 2012, the government granted 487 additional mining permits. Under a new agreement with the World Bank, another 839 are currently being reviewed. And then it says, um, in the Syria Valley, 21 of the 23 rivers that existed in the municipalities of El Porvenir and San Ignacio have disappeared because of the high water demand required in the mining industry. And remember, it comes out of the mines too. It's, it's not clear water anymore, clean water. As mining has drowned the soil in that area, says Jose Luis Espinosa, a mining specialist. The disappearance of the rivers is a direct result of the Canadian mining company Gold Corps Entre Marie Mine. The people have the right to water and to life. Says, We've expressed ourselves very clearly. It doesn't matter what you express. We are against mines because under the mining project there are five water wells for the community where 12,000 people get their water, explained Raimundo Funes, a protester from the municipality of Pespiri in the south of the country. It says the new agreement signed up with the World Bank will double the presence of international mining corporations without any community cons- consultation. This is the this is the new freedom and the new order. You know. It says this is part of President Juan Orlando Hernandez's push to attract more investment in Honduras from international corporations. These are select corporations. Remember, if you go into the military-industrial complex, you know how much of it is actually owned. All the big companies, the familiar names that you have, by Goldman Sachs, owned. And that's a whole story in itself. But anyway, you'll find the same thing with who they give contracts to from the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, and all the rest of it. It's their own boys. It's their big club. And the people in, in those countries no more say than you have in your own country. You no more say at all. That's quite something, but... But again, this is their new freedom, their new order of things. And meanwhile, uh, <laughs> as always, like any war, 
So wars are economic too, and cultural and so on. So remember that in any war, the folk who benefit are those who run the wars at the top, not the generals and so on. They get a, get a cut, etc., but they don't really get into the top money. It's the big businesses behind it. And the general population just supplied the troops, because we always breed them, you see, give them the, the proper indoctrination, regardless of the country. And they go off and get killed and get a lot of gold, and, well, gold tin plated bits of metal and stuff to put on their chests. But they get nothing after that. They're just tossed aside. Expendable. And they're, they're renewable as a resource, you know, breeding people. So there's always a, there's no lack of young guys ready to go off and fight. Never knowing, and actually not caring at that age either. There's big corporations that are going to benefit from it. And the taxpayers back home that will put in the railroad lines and the roads and so on for the corporations to get all their stuff out of the country, all their raw resources. As I say, it's more sophisticated today than just sending armies in, you see. You do it through bribery, it's much more... Uh, prevalent than folk would ever, ever imagine And you do it through threats Because they do threaten people Who want to go along with these big world agendas The top men of small countries Get assassinated if they won't go along with it Easy to replace again And that's it, the history of the world The real history of the world But you know, most folk don't care about the real history of the world Even as it's being made in their own lifetime They're too well entertained Way too well And remember all entertainment really Is to do with indoctrination as well Of ideas and They update your PC list For the week And you adopt those new opinions And everything else too Without even knowing it It's the way things are But um, as I say The public really have been bypassed a long time ago the only ones in democracy who have any say are the big organized groups that are well-funded with their own CEOs, by the way. These charitable NGOs, tax-exempt, funded by the big tax-exempt foundations. They pay their wages for the ones at the top. They even have their own office tower, some of them. And they get listened to by government because the governments are told to listen to them. They're authorized. Now, don't let this kind of information depress you and make you pack in everything. Just give up the ghost Because, you see, it's really always been like this It's just the, the technique of controlling you all Making you think something else Is pretty well perfected And actually it was perfected a long time ago too With mass communication, television Generations of it, and before that radio It worked awfully well And the first ones to use any kind of communication Are those already in power To make sure the proper kind of indoctrination is given Teach generation. So once again, the only thing you really own for yourself is your own mind if you want to use it yourself. Most folk don't. Because it's too convenient and easy to be downloaded by entertainment and everything else. Then go out and look and accept or toss away things and come to your own conclusions. Because remember, truth um, can hurt you. When you find out that, that most of your reality is an illusion Your indoctrination is giving you an illusion And you can go through the same process as, as when someone dies close to you 
So don't get depressed about it. Remember, it's always been like this. And people, if they do come to do anything or say anything or even influence people, it's one at a time. One at a time. And it can take a long, long time, even generations, for an idea to flourish. That's what they've always known, you see. And that's why they try to nip all, all ideas in the bud that are not authorized. Nip it in the bud right away and don't let it take off. But it also, also comes down to your participation. Like any good con, confidence trick, the person who's been conned must participate in their own con. You see? And if you participate in your own con and spout what you're told to spout, then you've got double think, as, as they had in Orwell's 1984, where you can hold two conflicting opinions in your head and believe them both at the same time. So it's, it's up to the individual. And as most folk you know, really do, they've never had you know, instant clicks in Asian entertainment for the night, all given to them. But it stops them from thinking. Thinking can be, can be dangerous to any big organization. When they, they, were going, they were talking about reducing the work day back in the 1800s, late 1800s, from 16 hours a day, that was a normal work day, including Saturdays, to, to, to a, few, a couple of hours less. They had big debates in London, England, by the owners of the big massive factories of the problems it might cause by folk communicating, having time and maybe more energy before they were exhausted after 16 hours and they got stumbled home and whole bit and by the time they'd maybe eaten a, a, a crumb here or there, they had, were no mood to talk about anything uh, and never had any energy for it. But if you give them more time, they might start communicating and that could lead to problems down the road. But nothing's really changed. Only now you've got time off, but you, you, you simply take it from movies and things on television that are produced, produced by others and called programs. Rather than think for yourself. But it's up to you, isn't it? Think for yourself. And if nothing else at the moment, you'll know what's going on. And you might or might not be able to share it with other people who are still in their, their fantasy. But you have to accept that and learn to think inside you and live inside your head at times. From Hamish Mustard from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your gods, go with you. <laughs>